0: it's friday october 6 2023 from Peachfish productions it's the gist i'm mike pesca and we're getting our wall who knew that it would take the biden administration to deliver on the promise that donald trump made over and over and over again the mexicans aren't going to pay for it i think biden's going to pay for it he looks pretty pretty silly you know, first it's, well, we're not going to build a wall. Then it's, all right, we're going to build a wall. But it's because the Trump administration is making us do it. And then it's in statements to the press. I still don't believe in walls. How can you not believe in walls? Not the big, stupid, spikes-on-top Donald Trump wall. But walls work. They've always worked. And they've always been part of our strategy to stop illegal immigration from the southern border. There's all sorts of barriers and police forces and helicopters and yeah, actual physical structures, not necessarily big spiky stupid walls painted white and red, but lots of barriers that have all through the years been a little bit of the chain, linked fence, to stop illegal immigration. I don't know. This is one of those situations where Trump's going to get the win because it's all very simple. He understands how to communicate in simple phrases, ideas, pictures, build the wall. Now Biden is embarrassed because he is building the wall. It's not the wall. The wall is not the solution, but Trump gets the win. Why couldn't Biden just have taken A play and a phrase from his predecessor and former boss, Barack Obama, who wasn't against the war, he was against dumb wars. Biden, his whole team, could have been against dumb walls, and now the wall, a wall, a part of the wall, legacy wall, is making him look a little dumb. On the show today, a deep dive into coverage or lack thereof into the accusations and counter accusations concerning a sexual assault allegedly perpetrated by former Los Angeles Dodger pitcher Trevor Bauer. But first, Yasha Munk is a writer, contributing editor at The Atlantic, and professor of practice at International Affairs at Johns Hopkins University. And he's out with a new book, The Identity Trap. I think he's been on for his last two or three books. I heard this book got... Get shouted out by James Carville as the best book he's reading right now. You will enjoy our discussion of terms and socialism and CRT. Yasha Munk up next. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about the Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites he does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few: Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFaul, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador, talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general, and he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee, but then after having a portrait of him for forty years, he's a sixty-three-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, "You know what that picture and that man means to." You, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where it got to the desk of Barack Obama and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter. And not to wallow in, he could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter, or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H A R, like the first three letters in hard, B I N G E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Yasha Munk is a professor. He founded the digital magazine Persuasion. He's, I'm going to say a public intellectual because he's an intellectual, and here he is speaking via the gist to the public. He writes a lot and worries about democracy, but he also worries about people who worry too much or in the wrong way about democracy. And in doing so, he has had to come up against the subject of his latest book. It's called The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and power in our time. It's about the trend that refuses to be named, but we all know what it is. He even offers a name for a new type of thinking that has affected, one might argue, infected so much of progressive spaces and therefore the culture. Yasha, welcome back to The Gist.
1: Thank you, Mike.
0: So Freddie DeBoer had this great essay, essentially a creed decor corps against the people who object to uh, any phrase like woke or politically correct, or social justice politics. That's his phrase. And the headline of that article was, please just fucking tell me what term I am allowed to use for the sweeping social and political changes you demand. Okay, that's good for an essayist. You're a college professor. How do you come at this similar frustration?
1: Well, I share the frustration, right? I mean, when you think of socialism, liberalism, conservatism, uh, these are controversial ideologies that some people love and self-defined by, and other people think would make the world a terrible place. But in each of those cases, uh, you know, as people say, I'm a socialist. As people saying socialists are dangerous, but they can agree on which term to use in those mm-hmm. two phrases. Right. And even if even if around the edges there is no, that's not real so- socialism
0: and you're just calling me, uh, you're just using it as a pejorative, there still is a fundamental basic understanding of a thing we're talking about, why we invent language to talk about this set of ideas.
1: Yeah, just, just a fundamental assignment. We need a label for the ideology and then we're going to, you know… Uh, somebody who's a critic of socialism uh, will say Venezuela is a case of socialism and that explains why social, you know why Venezuela went to hell and the socialists will say, well, actually, that's not real socialism. So, you know, fine, we're still going to have these debates, but they can both agree on the term socialism, right? Um, I think Freddie's absolutely right that we don't have a term for this. Wokeness used to be that term because uh, let's remember, it's hard to remember now that that used to be a self-description If people said, you need to be more woke, I'm woke. Uh, five years ago, that wouldn't have been a strange way of talking today it's become purely this sort of pejorative and so if you're going on about wokeness you sound a little bit like an old man shouting at the clouds and so I solved that problem in my book by inventing my own terms just so that I can have a serious conversation because what I'm trying to do in this book is four things it's trying to explain where these ideas actually come from at an intellectual level it's trying to show how we could go from being influential in universities but pretty marginal to society as a whole to actually having this tremendous influence in our cultural, social, political institutions, even in the corporate world. It's critiquing the applications of many of those ideas to important areas of of life, from from, from cultural appropriation to free speech to race-sensitive public policies, and it's trying to explain how we can do better, how we can take injustice seriously, how we can be consistent anti-racist, but build a world in which we uh, actually are uh, relate to each other less on the basis of a group we're a part on, rather than more, in which we finally come to have more in common with each other in, in genuine ways. But like Freddie, I ultimately am happy to use any damn term, as long as it's a term that that allows us to have a serious conversation about this important topic.
0: Yes. So Freddie himself uses social justice politics. I use, I don't talk about woke ideology on the show, I'll say progressive activists. I take that phrase from the Hidden Tribe survey. Wesley Yang calls it the successor ideology. He's more a polemicist. He wants to put a finger in the eye. You call it identity synthesis. I think that's befitting someone of your predilections and kind of uh, like deep reasonableness, maybe a little academic. But why is that a good phrase? What's it get at?
1: Well, what, what it gets at is the intellectual history I tell in the first part of the book of where these ideas actually come from. Now, there's, there's, you know a lot of the conservative critics um, of, of of this ideology. You want to say it's cultural Marxism, right? But the way to understand it is simply to take uh, Marxism, uh, take out the idea of class. Uh, Marxism is, of course, primarily an economic set of ideas and put in the idea of culture or the idea of these particular identity groups. And you get exactly what we have today. I just think that's wrong. That's wrong conceptually. And it's certainly wrong historically. So what I do in the first part of the book is to show the main thinkers who really helped to shape these ideas, which for me are Michel Foucault and the broader postmodern tradition, Edward Said, as well as Gayatri Spivak and the broader postcolonial tradition, and then Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and the broader uh, tradition of critical race theory. And what we are seeing today is a popularized, sometimes vulgarized synthesis of these different sets of ideas about identity. And so that's why why I call it the identity synthesis. There is a notion that is often voiced by people who are adherents
0: to some or all of these ideas. And what they will say is, you know what? You're mischaracterizing me. I don't believe that. And Kimberly Crenshaw doesn't sign on to everything. Michelle Foucault says, and maybe Foucault himself had doubts about some of his agenda and some of, uh, I you know, Edward Said is also dead, but that while post-colonialism does seem to go together with CRT does seem to get go with post-colonialism, Modernism, not always. And therefore, you'll always get the pushback you know, you're explaining my project wrong. Do you think that's legitimate, or do you think that's a tactic to elude uh, actually pinning down any of these ideas? Uh, You could even argue, maybe, that this is exactly what they want to do in order to infiltrate. Uh, discourse to say, no, 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 we don't believe this, you're getting it all wrong. And then you turn around and look, and it's like, oh, those ideas that they said didn't exist have taken hold in many of our institutions.
1: It's both of the above. Often in intellectual history, you know, ideas come from a particular place, but the person who originated them looks at the later evolution and says, well, hang on a second, that's not exactly what I had in mind. I'm not very happy about... Uh, what became of these ideas? So, I have a section at the end of part one called Careful What You Wish For. I think it's right, for example, that you know, Michel Foucault was really worried about what he called, what, 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 what James Mill called the panopticon the idea you know, that in a prison you would have a central guard tower, um, which allows the guard, in theory, to see any one cell at any one time. And so, if you're a prisoner, you never know when you're being watched. Uh, you might be punished for breaking the rules, so there's some amount of punishment. But mostly it's a case of self-discipline. You're always in anticipatory obedience, self-governing, because you think perhaps I'm being observed. I think Foucault would look at something like uh, Twitter and something like our kind of um, uh, uh, propensity to public witch hunts and think this is a form of modern-day panopticon. I hate this world. This is exactly what I was afraid of. So so I think there is a, a fair way to say that many of these thinkers would have been skeptical of what became of their ideas. Gayatri Spivak uh, ends up saying that uh, you know, she makes fun of, uh, she, she she has roots in India and says that uh, you know in allusion to the tea wallers that sell cups of tea in the streets across India, um, she makes fun of the identity wallers at American universities who she finds to be completely humorless and so on. So I think it's fair to say, hey, these are sophisticated thinkers um, and they wouldn't agree with the way in which the ideas are being applied today. But, but, I think it's very clear that all of the main themes of today's social justice activism have their roots in these thinkers. So let me talk you through that, uh, even if that takes a few minutes um, to to, to justify that. If that's okay, Mike.
0: Yeah, I'd like to, but let me, let me, before we get there, I just want to ask a specific one, which is CRT that was weaponized by Christopher Rufo and a few other conservatives finding critical race theory everywhere, even in places where it really didn't exist. So what, how this uh, shook out in terms of the public debate was uh, Rufo seeing that there was an opportunity to uh, paint with a pretty broad brush and hurt his enemies by uh, applying the label CRT to everything. The people who were adherents to CRT not wanting to uh, sign on to that description people who really weren't adherents or never even heard of CRT saying why is why is uh, the fact that we have this white affinity space that has nothing to do with Crt? CRT is an advanced uh, graduate level theory that's not what we're doing. So the question is, is it really, CRT that's going on in many of these spaces, or has the phrase CRT just become a boogeyman that gets applied to every kind of thought that Vivek Ramaswamy doesn't like?
1: Uh, both. So uh, I know I keep saying both to any question you ask, but it but it keeps being true. Um, so look, I think uh, there's a really sort of you know American the American public sphere is just absurd at the moment, right? And and what happens over time is that one person says something, and everybody on the other end of a spectrum just says the opposite, and then everybody on the original spectrum says the opposite of that, and 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 the fronts are just incredibly simplistic. So what happens over time? When we debate about "quote unquote" wokeness, is that you know some crazy people on the right will call stuff woke, but it's just sensible or reasonable, um, and then people on the left will say, "Well, all that wokeness is is." Wanting kids to be taught about the existence of slavery and stuff like that, right? Um, right. Just, just, just you know—all the critical race theory is is just being critical about the role that race plays in our society, right? And that is just—that is just false when you look at the origin of these ideas. And I, I, the people who would find it more offensive than anybody else is the original theorists who came up with those ideas. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, when it comes to CRT, somebody like Derek Bell. Uh, you know, really, the the the, the, the founder of, of 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 that ideology, the most influential figure within it, who taught many of the later people within it, like Kimberly Crenshaw, widely recognized as kind of a dean of critical race theory. Marx, um, uh, we shall overcome, the song of the civil rights movement, because he thinks it's too pious and optimistic. He says we should get rid of what he calls "quote unquote" the defunct racial equality ideology of the uh, uh, civil rights movement. He is deeply critical of Brown versus Board of Education, thinking that perhaps in many contexts we should have had institutions that are separate but truly equal. Kimberly Crenshaw says in 2010-2011 that the ideas of Barack Obama are fundamentally at odds with the main tenets, with the key tenets of critical race theory. uh, you know this ideology, critical race theory, is is, 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 is is one that you need to take seriously. I enjoyed reading Bell and Crenshaw; they're both smart people who I learned from in reading them. But they are fundamentally opposed to a tradition that I most value in in, in American political history, with that which extends from Frederick Douglass through Martin Luther King to Barack Obama, and is deeply aware of the hypocrisies of America, deeply aware of the injustices done in particular to African-Americans as well as other minority groups, but who say the way we've historically made progress is to demand that the country lives up to these values. And what we should do is to live up to these values rather than to rip up the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the, 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 the ambition to live in a country in which you're less rather than more defined by, by who you are, so I do. So 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 you know I do think there is a connection between these ideas. When when it comes to these specific things, um, that's more to do with Spivak than it is with CRT. But we'll, the idea we'll, of
0: CRT is disputed, widely disputed by people who want to have programs that have affinity groups in school or who emphasize whiteness or all manner of projects. And they will say, this isn't CRT. They will roll their eyes. They will point to conservatives who label everything CRT. And they will often say CRT is a graduate level uh, idea. No elementary school students are being influenced by CRT. So in your estimation, where will you find CRT that maybe some people deny it? Maybe they earnestly deny it. They don't know that it's there, but where is CRT really in our culture?
1: Well, I think that these ideas are an applied version of the identity synthesis, which is the set of ideas that I chronicle in the book. Um, specifically, what you're talking about, I think is more an outcome of an idea of um, Gayatri Spivak than it is of a critical race theorist, um, but they are very much part of the same tradition. So let me talk you through a little bit of that, at least the beginning of it, because really there's, I can only answer this question if I can go into the substance of it, right? So for me, the beginning of, this set of ideas is in Michel Foucault in the 50s and 60s. Um, and 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 Foucault is uh, defined by a rejection, first of all, of what he calls grand narratives, of a grand structuring uh, narratives, uh, the great theories that explain how the world really works. Uh, and he's critical of the grand narrative that is most popular among many of his contemporaries, including Jean-Paul Sartre, which is that of Marxism. So, so Foucault rejects Marxism, but he also rejects uh, uh, philosophical liberalism um, and the basic principles of, of, of liberal democracy in his day. So, so, so one key point we get from that is a rejection of uh, claims to truth uh, and a embrace of identity categories. He thinks that any attempt to try and make sense of a world. It does violence to it in many ways and reduces it. And one of those ways is using identity categories. He himself is what we would call gay, but he doesn't like the label of homosexuality because he thinks that oversimplifies the great variety of human experiences. So he doesn't see himself as a homosexual. That idea is taken up by Gayatri Spivak, a thinker who is born and raised in Kolkata in, in West India, uh, comes to Columbia University to teach literary theory. She says, hey, whereas people like Foucault are saying that uh, the subaltern, the the most oppressed, can speak for themselves, the white workers in Paris can speak for themselves, that's not true of the people I most care about in places like Calcutta. They may not not have gone to school. They may be uh, so disadvantaged that they just don't have the social standing, the resources, the education to really militate for themselves. So we do have to be able to speak for them. And so she suggests this strategy, which she calls a form of strategic essentialism. So she's saying the essentialist account of identity that many people take for granted, but there's something just objectively uh, common between people who are black or people who are women or something like that. Philosophically speaking, that is wrong. But for practical political purposes, we should act as forward was right, because only in that way can we accomplish our strategic objectives of fighting against injustice. And to do that, we have to encourage people to really deeply define by the group of which they are, apart. And that might absolutely help to set in place what I would now call progressive separatism in education. You know, what you always hear today in public discourse is things like, well, of course, race is a social construct, but then those same people go on to treat race as an essential category, as the thing that really is truly defining, not just of social power, but of our identities, of our ability to understand each other in key ways. And when you look at Uh, Organizations like Embrace Race, the educational consultancy that is incredibly influential in private schools in the United States, it basically uses the language of Spivak, saying that people should embrace race, that the key goal of progressive educators must be to teach us that we're racial beings, that we should primarily understand ourselves in those racial categories. Bank school, um, a very influential elite private school, very progressive. It, It separates kids into different racial groups at a very young age not of their own accord. The teacher comes in and says, if you're white, you go over there. If you're Latino, you go over there. If you're Asian American, you go over there. And it wants not just the, the black kids to have uh, an identity as African-Americans that allows them to fight against injustice. It wants the white kids to embrace the whiteness, to define themselves as racial beings in the hope that they will then go on to become good anti-racist activists that declaim the white privilege. But everything I know about history and social psychology does make me worry that we. End result is going to be the opposite, that if you tell a 7, 8-year-old white kid the most important thing about it is that you're white, he's not going to become a great anti-racist activist. He's going to much more likely become something like a racist, much more likely become somebody who says, well, let me fight for the interests of whites, because that I think happens when you split people up into these different groups. Yasha
0: Munk is a professor of the practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University. He's the founder of the digital magazine Persuasion, where he also hosts the Good Fight podcast. He's a contributing editor at The Atlantic, and his new book is The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. Yasha, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Mike.
0: And now the spiel. Two years ago, Trevor Bauer was among the highest paid players in baseball, more than $30 million a year in salary. This past season, he's been pitching for a Japanese team because no major league team would sign him. He didn't blow out an elbow or lose velocity on his fastball. He was suspended by Major League Baseball for violating its rules against domestic violence and sexual assault. The suspension was by far the longest ever given out by Major League Baseball. Two seasons, it was later reduced to 194 games, still the longest suspension under this policy. He also was the only player ever to fight this ruling and appeal it, claiming consistently that he did not engage in sexual assault. Central to the case were the accusations by Lindsay Hill. She has since agreed to be publicly identified, allegations that she was choked and concussed by Bauer during rough sex. Bauer countered with the acknowledgement that, yes, they engage in rough sex, but it was consensual and it was all at the behest of Hill. Over the years, if you followed the story and sought out the coverage that didn't shield readers or viewers from very off-putting details, a picture began to emerge of a very disturbing encounter which may actually have fallen into more of a gray zone than even the 194-game suspension would suggest. For one thing, L.A. prosecutors declined to press charges. For another, an L.A. judge declined Hill's request for a restraining order, which is rare. And reports of text exchanged where Hill said, all I want is pain and similar statements were also confirmed. And this was before this week. Now, of course, rough sex that goes too far that leads to serious bodily injury without the consent of the person injured is a crime and a violation but how to tell what the victim or potential victim defined as too far. Well, a few days ago, Trevor Bauer sought to define those terms. He posted a 3 minute 51 second video to Twitter X in which he said, now that he had settled with Lindsay Hill, he can reveal what his legal team found and what they found were exchanges of texts between her and friends in which Bauer says they planned to extract money from him. That plan was front and center. I already have my hooks in, you know how I roll. Then, after the first time we met, net worth is 51 mil, she said. Bitch, you better secure the bag, was the response. Uh, but, but how was she gonna do that? Need daddy to choke me out, she said. Being an absolute whore to try to get in on his 51 million. Read another text. Hill then appeared on a YouTube show hosted by notorious AOC annoyer, Alex Stein, where she contextualized the clips. She said there were jokes between friends about marrying Bauer, not staging a fake assault.
2: You know, the next line under that is, oh, you know, my friend saying, can't wait for you to be a rich baseball wife. There was never text that intermingled violence.
0: Bauer also, in his video, released a clip, a video clip of Hill that she took as a selfie on the morning after the last encounter she describes as a sexual assault. Her face in this video clip that morning, 30 minutes before she left, she says, her face appeared unblemished, but he'll explain that this way.
2: You know, so that video is taken with no lights on in the room Um, on snapchat it was taken and saved to the app so a lot of differences there between natural light and all that stuff
1: Um, and it takes a minute for a bruise to come up you know what i'm saying like then it's not just a bruise takes a minute to come up so yeah. yeah yeah
2: yes any normal person you know can see uh that bruises will take time that video was taken maybe four hours after everything happened so um I took that and I think, and I you know, said this straight in my deposition, if you zoom in, the scratches are all there, you know, you can't see if there's a shadow on my face. So what I did was, and these of course never been public either, um, some of them have been, um, I get in the car about 20, maybe 10, 20 minutes after that and take selfies of my, my entire face. And there that you can, you know, see the bruise just starting um, and the scratching and all of that stuff.
0: It's hard to adjudicate who has the better or more sincere version of the truth. When Judge Diana Gould Saltman was asked to grant the restraining order to Hill, she looked over the facts last year and asked, we consider in a sexual encounter that when a woman says no, she should be believed. So what should we do when she says yes? Normally or... Let's not say normally, let's say about 15 years ago, how this story would play out would be to take a beat and then real news organizations, I'm thinking of the LA Times, the New York Times, the SPN, the Washington Post, would devote their resources to providing answers, What really happened? Good journalists would be eager to get to the bottom of this. There might be some trepidation about weighing in too fast, but there would be a lot of momentum to answer the burning question, what really happened? But now that question doesn't burn. It can only singe whoever's even asking it. The initial coverage of Bauer's accusations were so lawyerly and bloodless that they begged to be skipped. Credit Ethan Strauss for pointing this out, but the ESPN headline, former MLB pitcher Trevor Bauer and a woman who accused him of beating and sexually assaulting her in 2021 have settled their legal dispute, Bauer's attorney shared in a statement, is, as Strauss points out, a really boring story. He writes, this headline seems to insinuate that he paid to make the ugly situation disappear. It does. I'll read you another one. LA Times, former Dodgers pitcher Trevor Bauer and accuser settle civil lawsuits against each other. Then follows a bland recitation of the settlement with dry quotes from the lawyers. But 15 paragraphs in, we find out, quote, After filing the defamation suit against Hill, Bauer said he was able to access additional materials including a video showing Hill, quote, smirking in his bed, quote, without any mark on her face after the second of two sexual encounters. Bauer said he found this video. They're quoting Bauer describing what he saw in the video. But we know that he played the video. And we also know, and this did come after the deadline for that article, that he'll confirm the video's authenticity you need to mention that it's not just Bauer saying he saw a video. He showed us all the video, which turned out to be a real video. Anyone reading the story would have already seen that video because Bauer posted it on Twitter in a clip with tens of millions of views. So into this ever cautious breach, which I don't know, will might be corrected by someone writing the definitive account in a day or a week or a month, but this is a breach. This is a maw, and into this situation comes the slice of media that's not just willing but eager to advance the story, the ideologically inflected media, which doesn't mean they're wrong, but they they exist, and they're not shying away. Clay Travis, a sportscaster and conservative talk show host, he has taken over Rush Limbaugh's old spot, was feeling vindicated. I don't think there's any doubt that Trevor Bauer was 100% wronged by sports media, by Major League Baseball. Uh, and by media outlets in general that ran with the allegation that he had beaten and raped and physically assaulted a woman that he slept with, that he choked her, that he fractured her skull, that he beat her up. Uh, All of those things appear based on the evidence now to be untrue. On the other side, ideologically, is Dan Lebitard, the former ESPN broadcaster who left the network over clashes with their insistence that he not criticize Donald Trump on the air. His program had their in-house baseball and legal expert David Sampson on. Sampson described Bauer's video. He went into a three-minute exchange of victim blaming and victim shaming. But that is the question. Was she a victim? Samson thinks so. He also says Bowers a liar. He actually lied. And he said that the court said that I never did it. And that's not at all what happened. But in fact, that is what happened. That clip, which got 200,000 views, was titled, In the Video, He Actually Lied. There is Zero Proof. Samson's explanation is that a rejection of a restraining order is not ipso facto or ruling on the truth of the underlying accusation. Yep. It doesn't have to be, but I've already read one quote from Judge Diana Gould-Saltman saying that Lindsay Hill said yes. Here's some other coverage of that LA Times. Gould-Saltman determined that Bauer did not pose a threat to the 27-year-old woman who accused him of sexual assault over the course of two sexual encounters and that her injuries were not the result of anything she verbally objected to before during the encounters. "Quote: When she set boundaries, Bauer respected them, the judge said. And the AP reported in denying the civil domestic violence restraining order after a four-day hearing, Judge Diana Gould-Saltman said that according to the 27-year-old San Diego woman's testimony, Bauer honored her boundaries when she set them, and she said Bauer couldn't know the boundaries she didn't express to him. So that's not just the judge rejecting a restraining order, but as Bauer said, it's her denying that the underlying acts were acts of assault. Lebetard himself in an effort to be even-handed, had on Gus Garcia-Roberts of the Washington Post, a reporter who has reported extensively on the story. Because he can tell us what the facts are here. He's been covering this, and he can come closer to telling me what's true here when I don't know what's true, and none of us really know what's true, with the most fact-gathering that he's done. But then, in conclusion to that segment, a segment trying to ascertain the facts of Lindsay Hill's status as a victim, Lebitard himself just plows ahead, presuming that she is a victim. This is why the system and everything works against victims who try to come forward and not be victims again because the system crushes them, money crushes them, privilege crushes them. Like this is, it's textbook, what it is that you're describing is the facts of this. If what Trevor Bauer is putting forward is correct, and that is the question Lebetard brought Garcia Roberts on to try to answer, if Bauer is correct, this is not the system or privilege crushing a victim. This is a false accuser getting exposed as such. And it might not be that. There are other accusers. We don't know the extent of their complaints. An Arizona woman has accused Bauer of sexual assault as well, charges which Bauer denies and which came forward after the assault allegations with Hill were revealed. And listen, the idea of rough sex and consensual rough sex. I mean, in practical terms, if you're a multimillionaire on a first or second date and you think that's a good idea, why not just go over to your checkbook, sign your name, write a one and maybe a zero, maybe two zeros and give it to your new sexual partner and say, you know, I believe we have a nonverbal agreement for you not to write too many more zeros and hope it all works out. That's about the wisdom of engaging in that sort of behavior. Hell, I'd even go as far as to say no first time rough sex with people you don't know and trust. It's crazy, right? Call me a kink shamer. But from a media perspective, which is what I have been talking about, I do hope that one day we'll get an account that we can trust, not just for Trevor Bauer's sake or Lindsay Hills, but for all of us as people who need some gauge as to truth and accuracy rather than what we're offered, which is a default to whatever ideology fits most Comfortably, and that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of the Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLFAO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com/slash/the-gist. Umprujipru dupru, and thanks for listening.